Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for the NCC podcast. God is doing so many great things in our community, and I trust that he's doing great things in your life as well. And I trust that God is going to speak to you through this message. I want to thank you for coming out tonight. And as you can see, we've been studying how to study the Bible. I just want to bring that up. And last week, go to the next one, Eddie. Last week, we covered biblical literacy, the importance of that, why we have confidence in the Bible. And then we did uh, an overview of the Bible from Genesis to Revelations. And tonight, I'm excited about what we're going to be looking at, because we're going to be looking at studying the Bible from two different study methods. So if you're new to the Bible and you don't know where to begin or how to start, we have something for you. If you've been around a while and you've got a little bit of gray hair like I do, and you want to go a little bit farther and deeper, we've got something for you tonight. And at the end, we're going to wrap it up with some of the tools that will help you in that journey. So with that, I'm kind of excited for what we're going to look at tonight. Our mission tonight really is very simply to grow your understanding of the Scripture. God's desire for your life is to go from glory to glory and not mess to mess. Amen? Sometimes we end up doing that, don't we? So when we understand that, we understand that's what God wants for us, then it's easy for us to comprehend this next statement. Improvement is not optional for Christians. Think about that. Your improvement, your growth in the scriptures, your growth in the body of Christ, your growth in the knowledge of the Lord, it's not optional. So don't be like that little boy who was overheard praying. What he said was this. He said, Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time just the way I am. Sometimes we feel like that, don't we? Lord, I'm doing okay. Well, we all know there's time spending God's word produces increased peace. It yields direction and wisdom for us. It nourishes and refreshes our soul when we need it. For some people, though, knowing just how to go about spending time with God through his word sometimes feels confusing and a little overwhelming. Sometimes we simply don't know how or where to begin. We feel frustrated because of the strange words and unusual writing styles. If you're reading an older version, which such as like the King James that was written in 1611 AD, the Bible can feel particularly foreign to you. And how, you, how do you begin to understand what you're reading? Now, if that sounds like you tonight, don't worry about it. Don't feel embarrassed or ashamed at all. We've all had those feelings. We have all been there at some time or another. But tonight, what I'm hoping to do is help, help you and empower you in your study of God's word. And, and I believe if we learn these principles tonight, we're going to see God bless us with fruit in our life like we've never experienced before. So the question is this, how can I get started? So let's start with what we'll call the beginner's guide to reading the Bible. And we're going to go through six suggestions on how to get started. Number one, choose a Bible version that's understandable and easy to read. It's it's just the flat truth. If you don't understand it, you won't read it. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. One of the earliest translations to English was the King James Version of the Bible. But today we have such a variety of versions to choose from. Some translations focus on being more precise and are best for Bible study, while others focus on readability, and those are great for devotions. If you're a beginner, I recommend the New Living Translation or a study Bible in the English Standard Version, the ESV, or the New International Version, the NIV. The NLT version of the Bible is most readable while still being literally uh, accurate in its translation. And the Bible studies, it has footnotes on there for you at the bottom, that are easy to understand. If you've been coming very much to our church, you know that Pastor Philip and Destiny often use several of these different translations when they're communicating God's word to us. Number two, you don't have to start at the beginning of the Bible. The Bible contains 66 separate books we talked about last week. 39 of those are the Old Testament, the story of God and his people before the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. The 27 books in the New Testament pick up the story beginning with the birth of Jesus. So if you're new to the Bible, I would suggest maybe starting in the Gospel of John. 
This is the fourth book in the New Testament, and it's John's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples, so his account is both riveting as well as informative. John's purpose in writing is to help us believe and to make, it makes an ideal place to start. Listen to what John has to say about this. He said, these things were written to help you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So now this is going to be a paid announcement. I'm not getting paid for it, but I'm going to do it for free. If you really want to study the Word of God and you want to go deeper and deeper, line by line, precept by precept, if you're already in a small group and you want to join another one, we have an adult Bible study group that meets on Sundays on the second, third, and fourth Sunday of every week. And what we do is we start off by having great meals. We've got the best cooks in the church, so we have a lot of great food. We fellowship, and then we get into the Word, line by line, every verse of the Bible. We're going through the book of John. So I invite you to come take part with us if, you, that, if that's something you'd like to do. Let's look at the third point. Pick a book of the Bible and then work your way through it. If you're anything like me, you need maybe a Bible reading plan to help you get started. Otherwise, you're going to waste a lot of precious time fumbling through the Bible. So pick one book of the Bible, read a little bit, maybe a chapter a day. If you did that, do you realize in 21 days you would have read the entire book of John? Now, maybe after reading John, you want to move to some of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Next, you might want to read Philippians or Ephesians or Colossians. They provide practical encouragement and instruction for living the Christian life. Pastor just took us through Romans, and that's essentially all about doctrine. Genesis explains how everything began, and the Psalms is filled with heartfelt prayers that offer encouragement, literally, for every season of life that you go through. Work your way through one book at a time, and you'll never find yourself fumbling to where to read again. <clears throat> it's almost like, imagine if you were on your Bible reading, you were on a bus tour. And if you ever went to one of these big cities like Los Angeles, and you got a bus tour, and you're going to go through and see these different houses. Well, you're on this Bible reading plan, you're on a bus tour, and you're going along house by house by house, book by book by book. And then if you, you find one you really, really like, you can get off that bus and stay there for a while and go deeper. That's kind of what you can do with this kind of idea behind it. So let's take a look now. <clears throat> Number four, how to read the Bible. Read a little every day. It's that simple. Getting God's Word in your life doesn't have to take long. Start small, maybe five or ten minutes a day. Some people like to, to read the Word in the morning. They're the kind of folks that get up early and they want to start their day with God and they really get some going. Other people like to do it at night, read His Word at night and settle their mind and go to sleep listening and, and reflecting on the Word of God. It really doesn't matter if you're morning or night. What really matters, not when you read it, but that you read God's Word. That's the important thing. So number five, pray before you begin. Ask God for directions. Pause for, for a moment before you open the Bible. Ask God to speak to you. Remember, the Bible is God's word. It is God's love letter written to his people for you and I to enjoy. Ask God to help you understand his word. Ask God to use his word to teach you, to direct you, to even redirect you if necessary. Ask him to use the word to help you to know him, and to love him. I love what Jeremiah 29, 13 says. This is God speaking to us. He said, you will seek me and find me if you seek me with all your heart. God loves to reveal himself to those who seek him. If you were lost and needed direction, you'd likely stop and ask someone familiar with the area to help you out, help orient you and redirect you. Well, let's face it. Nobody knows the word better than the author himself. So before opening your Bible, begin with a simple prayer asking God to take the will and to direct your time in his word. That way you're going to reap the greatest blessings for you and for his glory. Remember, God's word never returns void. It always accomplishes its purpose. And the last point here is write it down. That's what Chris was encouraging us tonight. Write it down. As you read the Bible, ask two simple questions. What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about how I should live? No doubt as you read the word, you're going to find sometimes one or two verses. They're going to simply just leap off of the page to you. They're going to resonate with you. Maybe they speak to an issue that you're grappling with. 
Maybe they answer a long-held question you've been struggling with. Maybe they give you comfort or encouragement. And maybe they provide an example to follow or one to avoid. When a verse resonates with you, stop, write it down, word for word, pause and let that message sink in because these words are God's words for you. Ask a simple question and then answer them to yourself. Here's some. What do I like about this passage? This question will help your mind slow down and notice what you just read. What do I find difficult or confusing? Now, here you can identify areas you need to do a little more study or get some more help. What does this teach me about God? The Bible says a lot about God, and we can learn about his characteristics and his statutes and his desires for our life. And then what does this teach me about people? The Bible has a lot to say about you and I. You may want to jot down biblical principles that you're picking up, ones that you discover. So you may want to put them in a prayer journal or a notebook. And then you want to maybe ask yourself a few application questions. <clears throat> Are there any promises that I can claim in this verse? Is there a command that I need to obey? Are there any sins that I need to avoid? Is there an example to follow? What encouragement or comfort may I gain from this passage? What new perspective is God trying to show me? Now, this next point is a very critical point, so, so listen well. When, God asks, <clears throat> when, when we ask for God's help, ask God how you can live out what you just learned and who you might need to tell about your new insights. See, this step is often forgotten, but don't forget it. If you miss this step, you'll only succeed in becoming a smarter sinner. You'll know lots of things about God, but you as a person won't grow or progress. You have to apply truth for truth to impact your life. This practice will cement God's word into your thoughts in countless ways. Sometimes, a verse will stay with you throughout the entire day. You know what I'm talking about. Ask God to help you remember it when you need it the next time. Memorize it. Be intentional about getting into God's word. And if you do all of these things, your relationship with God will flourish. After all, isn't that the whole point of teaching the Bible? The Bible was never meant merely to inform us. The Bible was meant to transform us. So these six simple steps, they will help you. They'll help you better understand any portion of the Bible. There are, of course, lots of ways that, to vary this, to tweak it, to build on the basic foundation. But master these basics we just covered tonight, and you'll see the Bible come alive in ways that you never thought were possible. <clears throat> so now let's look at the advanced method of studying the Bible. That's called the inductive method. So one of the best ways to study the Bible is through what we said, I just said, the inductive study. The inductive study of the Bible makes observations on a passage of Scripture, and then it draws conclusions based on those observations. So here's a very critical point to remember. As we grow in Christ, it's important that we learn to dig into the Word of God for ourselves. Underline that. For ourselves first and not depend solely on the instructions of others. See, first, read it for yourself. <clears throat> Meditate on that word. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you and reveal the truth that he's wanting to teach you and speak to you personally about. And when you do this first, then go to the commentaries to augment your knowledge and help you with other perspectives that you're looking for. Consider the challenge in Hebrews 5, 13 and 14 when the Bible says this, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by contrast use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So one of the best ways to get this solid food from the word of God is through inductive Bible study. And there are four steps to this. It's observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. 
And we're going to go through every one of those tonight. While I realize that most people aren't called to preach or stand before a group of people to teach God's word, all of us who are in God's family are to be good students of the word. And the first step is to getting into getting to know your Bible is really observation. So the technical definition of observation is this, to impact or take note of, to look carefully with attention to detail. Sherlock Holmes was quick to point that out to his friend when he said, Watson, you see, but you do not observe. For our purposes tonight, this definition for observation means this, to inspect or to take note of scripture, to look carefully with attention to detail. Now, some of you are too young to remember the Hall of Fame catcher for the New York Yankees many years ago by the name of Yogi Berra. But some of you know who I'm talking about. He was known for his yogiisms. And this is what he said when he got it right. You can observe a lot by watching. We smile at that. But the truth is we often fail to observe when we do not. And when we do not observe, we regret it. I came across this true story. <clears throat> true account. A man named Sir William Osler. He was a distinguished professor of medicine at Oxford University in the first part of the 20th century, and he was a stickler for detail. So he was determined that his medical students become keen observers beginning early in their training. So on one occasion, before a classroom full of young, wide-eyed medical students, this is what he did. He placed a small jar containing human urine on the desk. And this is what he said. I want all of you to understand that this bottle contains a sample for analysis. It is often possible by tasting it that you can determine the disease from which your patient suffers. He then stuck his finger into the urine and then put a finger into his mouth. Then he continued, now I'm going to pass this bottle around and ask that you do exactly as I did. Every student cringed, just like some of you are right now. That bottle made its way from row to row, from student to student, and each one <clears throat> gingerly poked their finger into that urine and then bravely sampled its contents with a frown. When the container finally made its way back to the professor's desk, he said, you will now understand what it means when I speak about details. Had you been observant, you would have seen that I put my index finger into the bottle and I put my middle finger into my mouth. <laughs> Most of us think we're better at observing than we really are. So let's look at observing the word and in its context. Carefully observing the text is always the first step of studying the scriptures. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And as we're looking at that, I want us to remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, 18, when David said, open my eyes to see the wonderful truths of your instructions. So verse 8 in the first chapter of Acts is one of the most familiar and important verses in the New Testament. And it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, at this point, we've merely read the words of the verses, but we've yet to observe them very carefully. So this takes time, and it takes effort. So let's give it our full attention as we go by each word at a time. Forget the time that this takes when you're, when you're practicing this. Focus one word at a time as you read it, just as if it's for the very first time. Now, you're going to be tempted to say to yourself, Oh, I've read this verse many times. I'm totally familiar with it. I need to go on to something a little more interesting. But if you do that, you'll miss some of the treasures buried under the surface. Even if you think you know the verse, there's so much more that you've never really observed. You must discipline yourself to examine each word carefully. So let's do that right now. The first word is but, B-U-T. Now we know that this term represents a contrast or change of direction. If we're moving in one direction and a but occurs, it indicates a turn. But means there's a change from what has been going on 
to something that will now take place. So what does that term contrast force us to do? It requires us to look back and determine what the contrast is. This process is called checking the context. We understand a verse of scripture better when we grasp its context, when we acquaint ourselves with the surrounding verses. Every verse sits within a larger context. So surrounding this verse, something is happening that causes the writer to begin the statement with but. So to determine the context, we must go back to verse 4, where Jesus is sitting with his disciples in Acts 1, 4 through 8. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, so now you have some context. Do you realize what was going on and was happening in verses 4 to 7? We were listening to a conversation. Jesus spoke, the apostles responded, and he gave them a statement. They asked a question, and he corrected their assumption. In other words, the conversation is a dialogue between Jesus and his closest followers. And in the middle of that dialogue, he says essentially, but hold on. This but in verse 8 is very important. Look at verse 7 again. It is not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his, authority, <clears throat> by his own authority. An epic, in definition, is a particular period of history, especially one considered remarkable or noteworthy. So this statement refers to when Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. Jesus was saying that since we don't know when all these events will happen in the future, something will play a significant role in our lives. And this is the contrast. So let me remind you, never isolate a verse from its context. When we seize isolated verses without having a bigger view of how they fit in with the rest of the passages, it leads to error, especially verses when they're pulled out of context. So look at verse 8 and move on to the next word, you. Now in English, we can't tell if that word is singular or plural. However, we've just read in verse 6 where Jesus is speaking to his apostles, so we know that you has to be plural. So he could be saying, you apostles or you followers of mine. Again, we are carefully observing scripture to find the answers. This brings us to the main verb, will receive. Jesus was saying that they weren't going to cause something to happen. They were going to receive something. Next, we look at whether this verb is past, present, or future tense. Will receive obviously means the event is going to be something that happens in the future. And as we read this verse, we can assume that the apostles didn't have the power then. But that at a time, that a time that would come in the future, they would receive it. Making this observation is not complicated. But if you skim through the text, you might miss it. Most people read the Bible in a hurry so they can get through an entire chapter maybe in 10 or 15 minutes. But if you wish to really become a serious student of the Bible, you need to forget your speed reading course because there's really no rush. So if it's important enough for Jesus to say, but you will receive, it's important enough for us to discover what he's referring to. Receive what? He uses the word power. So if we look up this word in the dictionary, we find the definition, the ability or capacity to act or perform effectively. Power is a significant word in this verse and therefore deserves investigation. And that's a good time to observe the cause and effect nature of Jesus' statement. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So if we stop and picture this scene for a minute, the apostles aren't praying for the Holy Spirit. They're not trying to bargain, thinking that if they give up something, then they're going to get the Holy Spirit. They're not promising that if they're going to be living a good, clean life, that the Holy Spirit is going to come to them. In a sense, he's saying, you can count on this. Jesus is simply saying to them, you will receive. That's a promise. That's an unconditional promise from Jesus. He's saying you can count on it. 
You're going to receive power because it will come from the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God is the cause, and the effect is the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's not the only promise if we watch this. Look at the next term. It's a small connective and. And you shall be my witnesses. So if you were marking your Bible, you'd mark both will and shall in your Bible because you will receive power and at the same time, you shall tell the story. Jesus said they would receive power and they would be his witnesses. And both of these promises are coming straight from Jesus to them. You know, Pastor Philip says a lot of times, you've got to put yourself in the story. So this would be a great time to put yourself in the story. Try to picture these men that they just heard what was being said to them. How amazed and exciting they must be. And do you know why? Because just stop and think what they were doing just a few moments ago. In the previous setting, when the apostles were with Jesus, they were running away after his arrest. He was going on trial. He would ultimately be nailed to a cross. But these same men who ran away had now returned to him. They'd seen him. They'd heard him say, don't be afraid. They received assurance, and now, of all things, they're being told this. You're not going to be punished for running away. As a matter of fact, something transformational is going to happen in your lives. You're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. You're going to have supernatural strength, and you're going to have the power to have insight into the Word of God. You're not going to be afraid. You're going to be courageous. You're going to have courage. And you won't be intimidated by the opponents who will stand against you. You see the benefit of imagination? Just imagine if we were sitting there hearing Jesus and listening on that. So let's, con let's continue. The verse doesn't end with Jesus getting specific about location. He says, where will the apostles go when they witness? So if you observe the end of verse 8, it says, in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So if you're reading that, you would have a clue to maybe ask yourself, where are those places? Well, when locations are mentioned in the Bible, you need to find them on a map. And as it turns out, those places were located in the land of Israel. We're going to pick that up there, Eddie. So I'm going to take you through that. Pay attention to what I'm going to show you here. Up here is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River. It's the Dead Sea, Providence of Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria. And later on, we're going to talk about this place over here, Gaza. So as we go through that. So if you had a map, you'd want maybe one entitled the Ministry of Jesus or something very similar to that. So as you examine that map, to familiarize yourself with it, the land of Israel at that time was called Palestine in Jesus' day. So at the top of the map, is the body of water, I just pointed it out, the Sea of Galilee. Toward the bottom is a much larger body of water, the Dead Sea. Running north to south is the Jordan River, which flows out of the Sea of Galilee at the top, south into the Dead Sea. To find Jerusalem, you go to the top of the Dead Sea, make a left-hand turn or go west, and you're going to see Jerusalem. That is the home base of the apostles. Jesus said they would be his witnesses right there in Jerusalem. And after being empowered, they would start where they were. Fix that fact in your mind for a moment. Now next, Jesus promises that they would be his witnesses in Judea. So you look for Jerusalem. It's in Judea. Judea was a province, which is similar to a state in the United States. We might say like Dallas is to Texas. So Jerusalem was a city located in the promise of Judea, providence of Judea. Jesus was saying that not only would his disciples be witnesses for him in their own city, they'd also take the message to cities around that area and then to places located in the province of Judea. Then he said to Samaria. So you'd move your finger north of Judea going straight up. You look for the word Samaria. You see that on the map. And it's a province. So Jesus was telling his apostles when they received this power, they would be his witnesses where they lived and then outside where they lived, and they'd even take his message to Samaria, and from there, they'd carry it to the remotest parts of the earth. That last phrase, the remotest parts of the earth, it's so broad in geography that a map of Jesus' ministry 
would not contain it. We'd have to go to the trips of the Apostle Paul to see what he's talking about. So let's turn our, our attention back to verses Acts 1-8. I want to kind of tie this together. Now, what we have here in Acts 1-8 is an inspired outline of the entire book of Acts. For the first seven chapters, the apostles were in Jerusalem. They were witnessing. They were suffering. They were enduring intense persecution. The apostles and the leaders of the early church were misunderstood by the religious community, and some of them were facing harassment and even arrest. Now, at the same time, what they were also experiencing is God's blessing, and their numbers were just increasing and growing. Their empowered ministry in Jerusalem begins in Acts chapter 2, and it continues through Acts chapter 7. As a result of the intense persecution, the apostles were, first, were forced to scatter, and they moved out into Judea, Acts 8. In Acts 9, Paul, we've heard of him, originally named Saul, he was on the road to Damascus. He had one plan in mind to really disrupt everything that the Christians were doing, but God had another plan for, for Paul. Aren't you glad he's got a plan for you? He had another plan for your life? Now, you wouldn't be here right now. So after his conversion and transformation, he took the message far beyond Judea into the Gentile world. So between Acts chapter 8 and the end of the book, Paul and others went into Samaria and ultimately the remotest parts of the world. Now, if you lived at that time in history and you were to go up to somebody who lived in that, that century of time, and you were to say, and where's the remotest parts of the world? They would say, and the first thing they would think of is Rome. Rome was one of the first mega cities. There were over one million people in Rome at this time. And that was the center of all the authority in the world. That's where the emperor was. And the apostle Paul had a face-to-face -face audience with the emperor. So that entire flow of events that I just went through is exactly what Jesus promised in Acts 1.8. He literally outlined the itinerary of the gospel. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? So let's look at the next, the next step here, interpretation. Let's focus on the second step of advanced study. Interpretation. This refers to coming to an understanding of what the Bible means. Now, it's important to note here what interpretation is not. It is not imposing your opinions on the Bible. You may have been taught something all your life that is incorrect. And you may find yourself looking to prove it in the Bible. That's not interpretation. That's trying to verify what someone has told you. Interpretation is drawing out what the text says or what it means. It's what you glean from the Bible itself. The key to correct interpretation is not based on wanting the text to say what I have in mind. It's learning what it actually means based on what it says. So according to what we're studying here, let's look at a really great illustration of this point I'm making out. Let's look at the New Testament book of Acts again. Now in the middle of chapter 8 in the book of Acts is a count of two people who couldn't be so diametrically opposite if you ever try to put them together. One is the evangelist Philip. The other is an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, his name isn't mentioned in the Bible, but we know a couple of things about him when we study it. One, he was the treasurer of Ethiopia, a very powerful position. And the other thing was he had just been in Jerusalem to worship. So by the providence of God, these two men are going to be brought together. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. Remember that picture, how far Gaza was, way out there from Jerusalem? Remember that. But here's something we got to stop and think about for a minute. It's a, it's a little bit of a caution. Don't wait for an angel of the Lord to say something to you. Okay? Because the reason this happened back then in those times, the Bible wasn't written yet. So God used a lot of different ways to communicate. He, he gave instructions through angels. He gave visions. He gave dreams. In this case, an angel literally told Philip to go south along a desert road to Gaza. But sometimes today, too many people are waiting for a voice from heaven or looking to the sky for a message written in the cloud or listening late at night for a whisper of God. I, I want you to know this. God doesn't usually speak to us that way. He, ta he takes 
He talks to us in his word. The message to us today is this. Read my word. It is all there. Everything that he wants to tell us is in that word. So according to verse 25, Philip had been in Samaria. Think of him as the Billy Graham of his time. He'd been in Samaria. Samaria had just been turned into the Gospels, had great success. And now as, as in God's mind, his work was there and he wanted him to come down. So uh, there's no wrestling match, if you notice that when you read that. He doesn't wrestle with God about that. It says he immediately went that way. He immediately got up and went that way. So look at the map again. We should have that map up there, all right? So Gaza is on the southwest of Jerusalem, just off the Mediterranean Sea. You see it up there? All right. Now, he's up in this area. God says, listen, Philip, I want you to go down south. So here's, he's, here's in Jerusalem, and he's, he's finished his work. He gets down into this area, and now he's going to travel all that way down there to, to that part right there. Do you think that was a quick trip? Do you think that was an easy trip? That is a desert area. Anybody ever been to um, Israel? Okay. Then you have seen some of the desert areas. That's a long trek. It's a desert area. There's not many cities on the way to Gaza. It's a Judean wilderness. There's hardly even a blade of grass, and yet God tells him to go. So Philip... Don't you think he must have wondered, why am I going there, God? You ever wonder why God asked you to do something? You ever question him? Let's look at Acts 8, 27. So he started out, and he met a treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the conduct of the queen of Ethiopia. Now the eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning, seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And I want you to see something here. We serve a God who is Lord over the entire universe, which means that no one is a stranger to him. God sovereignly led an Ethiopian eunuch into a barren wilderness on his way back to Ethiopia. God knew exactly where he was and where he was going and that he would have to go through Gaza to get there. I like what Isaiah 49:15 says because it tells us about God's ever-present interest in our lives. So if you're here tonight and you're wondering, does God care about me? Does he care really about me? Listen what Isaiah says. This is God speaking to you and to me. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love? For a child she has born. But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. You see, I have written your name in the palms of my hand. God knows exactly where we are tonight. He knows exactly what we're facing. And he's not worried at all about the outcome as long as you look to him. You see, God in this story, God knew where that Ethiopian eunuch was. And God knew Philip had good news that that Ethiopian eunuch needed to hear. So God sent Philip all the way there to be with that eunuch. In Acts 8.28, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside that carriage. And when he did, Philip heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah and asked him if he understood what he was reading. The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come on up into the carriage and sit with him. So step back for a minute from the story and ask yourself, what did the eunuch want? He wanted an interpreter. He was admitting, I'm reading words, but I don't know what they mean. I need help. I need your help. Come and sit with me. And you know what Philip did? He saw this as a God-ordained opportunity. God-ordained. So when the eunuch was in Jerusalem, you know what he'd done? He'd obtain a scroll of Isaiah. And on the way back, he, he unrolled that scroll and he began to read this out of Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. It's talking about Jesus. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. 
Philip knew that Isaiah 53 is a reference to the Messiah who would suffer and who would die. And he explained all of that to the eunuch and later baptized him. You see, the eunuch went full circle, didn't he? When he started reading, he didn't know the Lord personally. But by the time he finished reading, the Lord had become his Savior. How? Because Philip carefully and correctly interpreted the Scripture for him. So interpreting the Scriptures has to do with understanding what the Bible has been written for us. And I think that's pretty great. So let's move on to the third point, correlation. Now, no one is born with an innate ability to understand the truth of God, even after being a Christian for some time. The acquisition of knowledge and understanding, it comes as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, revealing truth. So in the process that we're going through tonight, you know, and, and this process of learning how to handle the Bible responsibly, we're learning to practice certain disciplines. So let's just review very quickly. The first step is observation. It answers the question, what does the Bible say? The actual words. The second step, interpretation. It's understanding what the Bible means. Now we're going to come to the third step, correlation or comparing. It focuses on what does the Bible say elsewhere about the topic we're looking at. So as we're learning how to interpret, it's necessary to check other verses that address the same subject. You see, no verse in the Bible is isolated. No truth stands by itself. By by comparing the verse with other verses, we gain a deeper understanding of what it means. And when we apply what we've observed, interpreted, and correlated, Scripture begins to burst into life for us. So by definition, correlation is this. It's comparing one scripture with other scriptures, plural. Precept upon precept, line upon line, to amplify our understanding of what the Bible is teaching. So correlation amplifies our understanding of what the Bible is teaching. The most reliable students of the Bible are those who take the time, keyword time, to compare one scripture with another. This discipline guards us from falling into air. There's a doctor, Donald Grayhouse, or great, Dr. Gray Barnhouse, great uh, scholar here. He had this to say. He said, you very rarely have to go outside the Bible to explain anything in the Bible. This is true because the Bible is the only perfectly correlated book on earth. There are no contradictions. Now, cynics will try to convince you otherwise, but the inerrancy of our scriptures assures us that we can trust God. We have in scripture, as we talked about last week, 66 individual parts of one perfectly coordinated book written by 40 human writers with one divine author, the Holy Spirit, who has watched over the preservation and the integration of the text, and it is filled with only reliable truth. Correlating scripture is invaluable. So we must remember, when we are correlating, comparing one scripture with another, we are accurately, everybody say accurately, we are accurately handling the word of God. 2 Peter 1.20 says this, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. The King James translation, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, the prophet didn't originate the message and then write it down. God gave it to him. It didn't come from his own initiative. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us, God supernaturally revealed this information. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. Remember last week the phrase, moved by the Holy Spirit? The word moved is the Greek word pharaoh, pronounced just like the Egyptian pharaoh or kings. Pharaoh means to bear, to carry, or to bring, and that's a nautical term. So it's used to describe a ship or a boat that has lost its rudder and its sails, and as a result, it's at the mercy of the sea, just blown back and forth with no power, no control. The wind and the waves are moving it outside its own power. The ancient prophets who spoke and wrote God's truth did so apart from their own abilities. The Holy Spirit led and empowered them. 
The prophets were supernaturally moved or directed by God to record his message. Now, we have the right to interpret the scriptures, but we do not have the right to distort them. Scripture represents an original, actual word or words of God, so we dare not twist their meanings. Here's another really great example of this correlation. To show how correlation works, we're going to go through the process, the topic of prayer. So first, we're going to look at what Jesus taught. He taught his disciples this about prayer in Matthew 21, 21 to 22. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up, thrown into the sea, and it'll happen. You can pray for anything. And if you have faith, you will receive it. Wow. We'd love it if all of our teaching on prayer would stop right there. As if prayer simply involved asking God for something and you get exactly what you ask for. As if God is this holy spiritual waiter and he just takes your order and he runs right down and just hands you that plate and you just take whatever you want. It doesn't work like that. Not when you're correlating scripture. But if we continue to study God's word, we're cautioned in 1 John 5 to ask for whatever pleases God and not ourselves. Hmm. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask, ready, underline this, for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. So we read on a little bit more in the Bible, and here comes James, and he adds a little bit more. He says, he writes that we are supposed to pray with clear and clean motives. Wow. James 4, 3. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So in other words, we need to examine our motives. And as we look at God's word completely, again, comparing, we've come across Psalm 66, 18. It says this. It offers this warning about praying when we have unconfessed sin in our lives. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So what does correlation or comparing teach us? We need to correlate Jesus' words in Matthew 21 with John's instructions in 1 John 5. And also with James's warning and the psalmist's counsel. So that's what keeps us from, at, from making false statements based on single verse interpretation. So correlation shows us this name it and claim it teaching is incorrect and therefore not reliable. God's word correlated with God's word keeps us on a straight and narrow path of correct thinking and righteous living. So let's go to the last point here, application, the fourth step. What do we mean when we talk about applying the Bible to our lives? Application simply means that we, we take God's word personally. It means we see how it addresses specific areas in our daily lives. It's allowing the Bible's truth to grip us in areas that need attention and to call us to action. So please catch this. This next part is very important. If I present the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to you, and I tell you that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, and I explain that he was buried and shortly thereafter miraculously rose from the grave, and if I tell you that Christ's death and resurrection paid the complete penalty for your sin, giving you the opportunity to have eternal life, but if I stop there, all you have is a set of facts. Yes, these things are all true, and they're all reliable. But, that important word, but, the message is incomplete. If, however, I say, you must receive this message personally, then you're left with a response to the entire message of the gospel. You're free to accept the message or reject it, to believe it or refuse it. Application is allowing the truths of God's word to grip us in the areas that need attention and to call us to action. You have not preached the gospel until you have given people something to believe in. 
In simple terms, application is obedience in action. So why is application important? Let's just cover three key points. We need to practice what we believe. In the book of James, it all revolves around this theme. Those five chapters are dedicated to this. Pretty much, he says, if we say we believe, why would we behave as if we don't? James invites us to come before the mirror of God's word and see the true condition of our lives, our inner lives. The second thing, both the Old and the New Testament exhort us to do so. Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his directives, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. James 1.22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. We're not to be blind, passive followers. We're to be obedient, active followers. God did not give us his word to satisfy our curiosity. He gave it to transform our lives. And the third point, application enables us to operate our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. As we apply this truth, the Spirit of God is supernaturally working within us. As we take that word deep within us, we allow the Holy Spirit to move within us, directing us. Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and spread the truth. He expects his followers to put forth his instructions and to put those instructions into practice. Now, a lot of times to do that, fear comes over us. So if we're going to do that, we have to have a mindset that says, God is with me. We have nothing to fear. When you're in doubt, when you don't know where to turn, when you're confused, when the enemy's whispering doubt and negativity to you, and this isn't going to happen, God's not going to be there. You heard that wrong. That was a bad pizza or something. Psalm 139 says this in verse 7. This is God's word to all of us tonight. No matter what you're facing, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the morning and I dwell in the, in the farthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me, your strength will support me. Now, did you see something in verse 9? The wings of the morning. That refers to the rays of the light that come from the sun early in the morning. Those beams of light travel to earth at 186,000 miles per second. So if we could travel that fast, do you realize we would arrive on the surface of the moon in about three seconds? So when you're wondering about, what will I say? I don't know what to say. Here's what Jesus said to you. Don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. You see, God wants us to, he sees us like a well. And the more of God's word we put into that well, and the more we fill that up, we can dip into that. So don't let your well run dry. Get into God's word every day. When evangelist Billy Graham was asked if he had his life to live all over again, would he change anything? What, would he? He said, yes. Yes. I'd study more and speak less. I'd study three times more than I spoke. I love the Chinese proverb that says, dig the well before you're thirsty. You see, searching the scriptures takes time and it requires Hard work. Most people read their Bible in a hurry so they can get through the entire chapter in 10 or maybe 15 minutes. But if you wish to become a serious student of the Bible, you'll need to forget your speed reading course. There's no rush. God doesn't reveal his truth to the hurried soul. You never go deep if you're in a rush. So let's wrap this up with looking at the last part of tonight. There's a process and an art to following the four steps when you study God's word. So just as a chef knows the best utensils to use in a meal preparation, 
A student of the Bible needs some key tools, and some of those are, and this slide will show you them. We're going to talk about all of them. A study Bible, maps, concordances, Bible dictionaries, commentaries, online resources and apps, daily devotions, and there's probably even more. Well, let's start with the first one, a good study Bible in a translation that you can understand. Now, the New Living Translation study Bible, it's succinct and it's easy to read, but I would encourage you, whatever Bible you select, be sure it provides sufficient space to write in the margins and that it offers helpful comments. The next tool would be a concordance. Now, this tool is like an index of the Bible. It features an alphabetical listing of all the words in Scripture. So let's take, for example, the word integrity. You would look up the letter I. And when you look up the letter I, you will find integrity. And then you'll see a list of every time that word appears in the Bible. So here's a key point when you're doing that. Make sure your concordance corresponds with the version of the Bible you're using so that the words match. Here's what can happen. If you look up the word love in a concordance, but your translation uses the word charity, you may not find the results you're looking for. So if you use the NIV, New International Version, you'll need an NIV concordance. If you're using a King James, you'll want to use the Young's concordance or Strong's concordance. And there's many online digital versions. The Logos Bible software, it's available for purchase. It contains digital library of research books, including commentaries, dictionaries, Bibles, and even atlases. There's the Olive Tree app. It can be purchased for various phones and tablets. It has some free resources. It allows you to search for any word in any version of the Bible that's available on that app. And there are also websites, such as the Bible Study Tool. Now, that's a free website. It offers helpful resources for Bible study, including commentaries, concordances, and encyclopedias. You have Bible Gateway and Bible Project. Now, David and Sarah Loper, they love that one. They told me about that. So here's another tool, a Bible dictionary. This is a helpful tool for explaining background material and Bible history. Without one, well, you will have an incomplete understanding of what you're studying. Now, here's two reliable sources, the Unger Bible Dictionary and the Zondervan Bible Dictionary. You see, words are important. They form the building blocks of spiritual thought. The meaning of a word has everything to do with the meaning of the sentence. And the meaning of a sentence has everything to do with the paragraph in which it is placed. A Bible dictionary ensures the deeper spiritual truths are not lost. You'll want to get maybe a Bible handbook. Now, a handbook gives you a simple, concise encyclopedia of scriptures. It provides brief summaries, helping you to cover many bases in a short time. And I would recommend the Haley Bible handbook. Then we have commentaries. Commentaries provide helpful insights you might not catch on your own. Some of the more popular ones are Matthew Henry, the Moody Bible Commentary, MacArthur Commentary, and something you may not be familiar with, the Biblical Illustrator. And I have all of those back there on a table back there. When we're done, if you want to stop by, we'll pull that cover off of there. And you can see all of these different uh, examples that I have put out there for you to see. You want to get a good set of maps. Look in the back of your Bible. And if there are no maps in your Bible, look for one that has maps or go online. It's helpful to have a current map of the land of Israel so you can understand where the corresponding locations are today. So what would be some good maps to have? Territories occupied by the ancient prophets would be one, the patriarchs, the exodus of Egypt, the ministries of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus covering his entire life, and then Paul's missionary journeys. Those are all important. So kind of wrapping this up, searching the scriptures takes time, and it requires hard work. Chances are God won't reveal his will in a cloud formation during the day or in voices around your bedroom at night, but he has written his will in his word. The more careful you are in your private study and preparation, the more confident you'll become in teaching it to others. As we learn to dig in deeply in scriptures with diligence and discipline, those things aren't optional. As with any skill, we have to put our whole heart into it if we want to be better and better at it. We must passionately and patiently prepare. 
Don't think you have to go to seminary to understand the Bible or to teach its truth. It is essential for you to learn Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic to know the Bible. You just have to spend time. Time preparing, time studying, time praying, and time giving your attention to Scripture. So tonight, you've been exposed to the inductive method of studying. You've seen observation, interpretation, correlation, and application. And that's great. But in conclusion, it's not enough to be content with your personal growth and stop there. Now it's time for you to share your knowledge with others. You may not be called to preach behind a pulpit or teach a class or even write a book like Carissa has. But you can still open the scriptures with others, even if it's in a small group or a one-on-one setting. Thank you for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and share our podcast. For more content from NCC and how to get connected, visit ncc.team.